Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Dr. John Barton, Professor Emeritus at the University of Oxford and priest in the Church of England. Uh, this is a guy that he, he's just brilliant. We're talking about the Bible, and uh, he's got a great accent as well. But more than that, uh, it's a good subject matter, talking about history of the Bible. And you know what? If you want to learn more about the Bible, let me tell you where else you can go. Not just this new book, but you can also go to the Abilene Christian University Graduate School of Theology. They offer opportunities to engage with the community of learners and disciples dedicated to the formation and equipping of Christian leaders for a changing world. Uh, they are somewhere based in Abilene, Texas, accredited by the Association of Theological Schools with globally renowned faculty who are both experts in their field and spiritual leaders in their faith communities. They strive to be a community that is serious about intellectual rigor and spiritual formation. To that end, they offer a variety of academic and ministry-oriented MA degree tracks, along with the Masters of Divinity and even a Doctorate of Ministry all of which are designed to cultivate virtuous curiosity and skills for ministry and scholarship. Now, let me say this, as an Abilene Christian University Graduate School of Theology graduate myself, I had an outstanding experience there, and it's an experience that I often um, share with others as something that they should themselves check out. Um, I think you need to look into this if you're looking for a place to learn more of the Bible, of theology, of history, of textual research, of biblical languages. If you want to learn more, go to acu.edu backslash gst or email them at gst at acu.edu. And now, without further ado, Professor John Barton. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us um, from the the UK, uh, Professor John Barton. Welcome to the show, sir. Hello, thank you. Now, uh, you are a professor emeritus at Oxford. Um, are, you, are you on campus today? Are you at home? I'm actually at home at the moment, but I, I, I work um, three or four days a week now in, in Oxford itself. I live about seven miles away. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah. And so you're, you're, uh, are you teaching classes in the summer? I, I teach a little bit. Um, I supervise quite a number of doctoral students. Okay. Uh, but I don't, I don't do very much. Since I, I retired, I don't do very much actual teaching of students any longer. So I have more time to write, which is good. Outstanding. And, and obviously we're going to talk about uh, the most recent book that you have been writing. Mm-hmm. But uh, so you, Professor Emeritus, you were at uh, Oxford since for four decades, is that right? Yes, I, I came to Oxford as a student and never left. <laughs> wow. Um, which is, I think in the States is inconceivable, but in, in Britain does happen a bit. So I don't know many people who've had quite such an uninterrupted run in one university. But no, I arrived in 1966 and progressed through various stages of studentship and so on into a lectureship and then a professor. Wow. So I've been in Oxford a long time. Well, my university experience had me finishing my Master's of Divinity and then they asked me to leave and to go work somewhere else. So they, they didn't like me as much as they like you there. So congratulations. <laughs> I think it's a difference of convention. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, not mm. only uh, are you a professor, uh, but you also uh, have been a ordained serving priest in the Church of England since the early 70s. Is that right? That's right. I was ordained uh, just 50 years ago. Yeah. 50 years. Uh, and, uh, let me see. Uh, no, 73 I was ordained. Wow. So that's less than 50 years. That's still many, many years. What is it like wearing both of those hats as a a priest and a professor? 
It's quite interesting. I mean, I, I'm very much a priest, if I can put it very much spare time, and since I, I help in pastorally and liturgically in the local church where I live, and during the working week, I don't do very much of a of a, of a priestly sort. Um, but nevertheless, it means that I have to preach, and I have to make sure, or try and make sure, that I don't send you a sermon that I wouldn't defend in the lecture room, and I don't say things in the lecture room I wouldn't be prepared to preach. Mm-hmm. So it's quite important to try and uh, get the get the balance correct and uh, to um, do justice to both callings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, Miroslav Volf uh, on, uh, who's at oh, Yale, yeah. and he, he, one of the things that he was talking about is there's sometimes a tension between the academy and from the church. And I, I love to see examples of people like yourself who have uh, had a foot in, in both of those different roles and, and bringing them together. Yes, I think it's. I think it can be done. I mean, obviously, it depends on what position you end up at in your academic work. I mean, if I ended up thinking, obviously, I write on the Bible, ended up thinking the Bible was worthless or something, then I would academically, then I would have a great difficulty in ministering in church. But um, there, there's sometimes a bit of accommodation to do between the two, and you can't necessarily tell people in the pulpit from the pulpit exactly what your latest findings are in academically. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, um, I try to keep the two lined up as far as I can. How how do you perceive what is an appropriate accommodation so as to not um, uh, disrupt, uh, in an unhealthy way, the faith of the parishioners? Um, well, what- yes. Yes, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. Um, I mean, for example, on Sunday I was preaching on the power of the Good Samaritan, Mm-hmm. Now, it's quite arguable that the Power of the Samaritan was written by Luke rather than going back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it may, that may be true, it may not be true. But I, I'm afraid I didn't raise questions in the pulpit. If in the parish I was giving a talk on the parables, then I would say, you know, there are people who think that some of the parables were made up by the evangelists rather than by Jesus himself. But in the course of a, a short sermon... I didn't want to raise that question because it would just have distracted from the message of the parable. So you have to make a kind of adjustment. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I think that makes perfect sense. And I, I find myself with my my full time job as a pastor. I find myself making the same sort of. Um, yeah. uh, I think they're pastoral, pastorally appropriate statements. For example, I was preaching through the book of Daniel um, recently in our congregation, and there's certain things like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son Belshazzar. Well, I, some some would debate if that actually was a son, and, and, and certain things about that, and obviously the dating of the story and how it took place. I, I, I don't yes. feel like that always moves the, uh, the congregation forward as it needs to be. Well, that's how I feel too, but... I mean, I do think that there's more information about the Bible that people could do with having that we don't give them. <laughs> and partly one of the reasons why I wrote my book is to try and communicate uh, you know, a broader public yeah. some of the things that academics discuss yeah, about and, the Bible. And I think a book like yours is a great form for that conversation to happen. People can read the book, they can uh, read it in community, they can have those conversations, whereas Sunday morning sermon, probably not so much, whereas your book no. is great. Yeah, well, there we are. um, I think think it is important to know when it's appropriate to say certain things and when it's appropriate to say others. Well, the the title of the book is A History of the Bible, which is uh, a quite um, redoubtable title. I mean, that is a a big title, A History of the Bible. Do you find this as 
in some ways the, the, the capstone project of decades and decades of service in the academy and the church? I think it has turned out to be that, really. Um, when I was asked to do it, um, Penguin approached me and asked, would I write a book called The History of the Bible? And I said, well, it's a very almost megalomaniac thing to do because it's so, such a huge task. Uh, but as I did it, I found that what I was doing really was distilling everything I knew about the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a certain sense, I do feel it sort of um, culminated my my academic and uh, ecclesiastical work. Yeah. Um, I'm now faced with the question of what to work on next, and I'm <laughs> finding it a bit difficult to decide because <laughs> I've sort of said everything. Yeah, yeah well, y- you can figure that, that one out next. But this uh, this project turned out great, and, and I can see how... Uh, you would feel a bit like a megalomaniac saying that I can write the history of the Bible, but there are some tasks, uh, like for example, in the States, like someone who says, I want to be the president, I want to be in charge of our country. Like you you have to have a few, you know, lines crossed to think that you can be the most powerful person in anyone's country. And so in the same way that this is a task that I know it's difficult, but I'm glad, I'm glad you signed up for it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I did it, as you'll have seen, the chapters are little sort of essays on a cross cut of the Bible. Mm. Um, they don't try to be completely comprehensive because you couldn't be. Um, they, are, they are representative samples of what we know about the history of the Bible. Yeah, well, it, there's a lot there. And one of the lines that you start the book with is, uh, the history of the Bible is the interplay between religion and the book. Now, for mm-hmm. for people like uh, the tradition I grew up in, which is uh, a small tradition that's been around for roughly 100 years in the Restoration Movement in the southern parts of the states, known as the Churches of Christ, um, mm-hmm. we've deeply identified ourselves as people of the book. And so, to some degree, yeah. like the book is our religion, but it's not all of it. There is this, this interplay between it is our religion, but there's also more than just the book. How, how do we understand the Bible in that sense? Yes, and that's right. I mean, what I work with at the end is a model of what amounts to a Venn diagram, saying, well, you've got the Bible and you've got the Christian faith, and the two have an enormous area of overlap. But there are things in the Bible that we don't make much of in Christian religion, and there are things in the Christian religion that are not very, very securely focused in the Bible, so that the two things are not coterminous, even though they do overlap to a very large degree. And I think that's true of most forms of Christianity. It's true of all forms of Judaism. And I think it's true of most forms of Christianity that even if we say we don't believe anything unless it's in the Bible, nevertheless, on the ground, our actual practical religion does have things in it that are not directly in the Bible. And there are things in the Bible we don't pay all that much attention to. So Mm -hmm. this is a question of selection. Yeah, yeah. My tradition literally has uh, this mantra that we say that we we say that we have no creeds but the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. But in practice, there are many there are many creeds that we have subtly and tacitly passed down from generation to generation, and we all do. Well, that would be my feeling about. I think I don't think there are any versions of Christianity that isn't true of really. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, we're all we're all much closer together than we think we are mm-hmm. uh, for just that kind of reason. Yep. I mean, the, the Church of England lays down that you know, nothing is to be believed unless it's in Scripture. Um, that's one of our articles of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but in practice, there are things that, you know, are not um, central to Scripture, shall we say, that we do and believe in. Yeah, yeah. So I think all, all the churches are like that. 
Mm -hmm. Well, uh, definitely agree with that. Now, um, what I'd like to do, if, if you're game for this, if you're up for it, is let's talk about kind of uh, an intro to uh, the Jewish scriptures, and then let's jump to the New Testament scriptures in terms of mm-hmm. how we got them. What, what is the, the form and the process that ended up with the scriptures that we have? Um, now, let's start with Torah, if you're okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. One of the ideas that, that you talk about is one of the solutions to some of the redundancies and the the different names or the contradictions that we find in Torah. Like, for example, one of the earliest stories is uh, the story of the flood. And there's one account in Genesis that says it was 40 years, and there's one account that says it was just one year. H- how can mm. we process how we get the Bible when it has such glaring contradictions like that. that. That's right. Well, there are, I mean, in both Old and New Testaments, there are contradictions between different places in the same Bible. Um, and I think, I mean, in terms of, of history, uh, what happened in Genesis with the 40 days and the year is that um, there were two different stories of the flood and they wove them together to preserve as much as they could of each version. Mm-hmm. And I think we would find that a very strange thing to do. We would try and iron it out and get an agreed solution. What they produce is something that doesn't quite cohere, but it's uh, a matter of saving all the pieces so that nothing is lost. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, are all the traditions associated with Moses in some way or other by long transmission even if they don't all marry with each other mm-hmm. um so that uh, it's a kind of anthology of things that are traced back to moses mm-hmm. rather than a coherent work written all of a piece yeah in the way that you described that our modern approach would be we want to iron everything out but maybe the approach mm. that would found been found in antiquity is that we don't want to leave anything out and th- I think that's right, not to lose anything. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that, uh, and I don't know if you can speculate on this, what do you think changed that made the modern reader want to have everything ironed out, whereas the, uh, the storyteller, the, the collector, the compiler from back then be less concerned about things contradicting and more concerned about making sure everything's in there? Yes, I don't know whether it's a product of modernity, of the Enlightenment, in other words, of the, of the 18th century, that we want um, things to tell a really coherent story. I mean, you find still in the Middle Ages that um, uh, you get works which are a collection of bits and pieces which no one has completely um, regularized and, and made fit. Uh, I mean, the Chanson de Roland, famous medieval uh, epic, um, I think has the story of Roland dying three different times. Hmm. And that's presumably because there were three versions of the story and the, the compiler didn't want to leave any of them out. Hmm. Um, but we, we would find that very strange. Though actually, of course, in, in more sort of postmodern writing, uh, that kind of thing's come back. So you might find a novel nowadays which did just that and was regarded as good literature. Yeah. But I think until that, it's been normal to say, well, we want the story to make a coherent whole. Yeah. And they didn't, didn't feel that to the same degree in antiquity, I think. Yeah. So, so what, uh, 
many scholars, and w- one of the theories that that you uh, I wouldn't say you popularize, but you you discuss in the book is a theory that's uh, sometimes known as the new document hypothesis, where mm-hmm. there's four different sources that were compiled and mixed together by some editor that gave us what we have. Uh, yeah. For someone who's never heard of J, D, E, and P as those four sources, how would you explain that? Well, I think what I'd, I'd say is that that, that is true. That is the classic so-called new documentary hypothesis. Um, what I tried to do in the book is to say there are really two sorts of material in the Pentateuch. There is material in what I call saga style, which is um, detailed and really engaging stories. And then there is material which we tend to call priestly style, which tends to be lots of regulations about worship, and a few stories, but stories told in a very formulaic way, like the creation of the world in Genesis 1, which goes through, and then there was evening, there was morning, a third day, there was evening, there was morning, a fourth day, and so on. Um, And the Pentateuch is basically a combination of material in those two styles, of which the first, the so-called, what I'm calling the saga style, is probably earlier than the priestly material. Mm-hmm. Now, it is more complicated than that, and when you go through the complications, you can arrive at these four sources or even more sources than that. Mm-hmm. But that's the basic distinction I'm trying to, to show, and I do it with by producing examples of the two styles yeah. um, in my chapter on, on, on biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. which I hope um, does show that's happened. Now, then you get the question, well, why has it happened? Why did somebody do that? And that's where we get into the, what we've just been talking about, the sort of need not to lose anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does produce a, a funny story. If you read Genesis, um, Genesis and Exodus and so on right through, you do feel as though you're being rather buffeted around by changes of style and changes of tone, and the narrative doesn't always cohere and make sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like you you feel more buffeted around when you don't have an understanding of possibly what what was happening as these books were being formed. If it, if people understand, mm. uh, if I can understand that this is someone who doesn't want to leave everything out, so it's putting all the stories in, it, it seems to give a little bit uh, more continuity and an understanding of what's happening. And I think you can see some of the nuances more that way, too. It, it makes a lot more sense. And when when you see it that way, you, you can say to yourself, oh, now I see it's not so puzzling and peculiar as I thought it was, actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, yeah. And, and so you see, for example, the uh, the first creation story, Genesis 1, and you hear mm. the, the rhythm and the poetry of, and God spoke, and there was creation, and it was good. And you see this building, and if, if you're putting this in the, the priestly category, uh, it's not a surprise that the apex of creation then is Sabbath, is when, when God no, rests, which right. becomes our, you know, day of worship. So, of course, a priest is going to tell a story in that way that, that emphasizes day seven. Yeah, and, and that's right. And a lot of the stories in P, a lot of stories in general in the Bible, are stories explaining the origin of something. Mm-hmm. And the priestly ones often explaining the origin of, of a, an institution of worship, like Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, Genesis 1 is, is a a very long explanation of why we keep Sabbath. Yeah, and, and so a lot of the modern questions that, that we put on Genesis 1 probably aren't the questions that it's originally trying to answer, but what it is trying to answer are very substantial questions that when we can put this text in the context of those questions, 
we realize how much more that the text is actually saying to us. I think that's right. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. That, that it's not answering our questions: how old is the Earth, and um, um, exactly in what order were things created? It's answering different questions and answering them very adequately within its own cultural context. Yes, uh, m- most definitely. And so, obviously, the the center for a, a priestly um, perspective uh, would be temple, and the, the temple being mm-hmm. the center of where. Uh, the priesthood activity and the life of the community uh, exists. Um, what? How does the disappearance of the temple ultimately uh, affect the way that Torah was treated uh, when temples no longer there? What does that do to Torah? Mm-hmm. Well, it, what it seems to have done in Judaism, it, it might not have done this in any other religion, but it does in Judaism. It means that the book suddenly becomes more central than the cult. You know, than the meaning by the cult, all the things that go on in the temple. Yeah. When you can't any longer do these things, then um, study of the book uh, becomes more central. And as well as in modern Judaism, you know, that the, the festivals are observed by reading and thinking about the regulations for the festivals uh, as they are in, in written form, because you can't do them any longer. You can't offer animals and sacrifice and so on. Yeah. So um, the book becomes more central. And I think that, you know, the story of, of, of Judaism in many ways is the story of it becoming a book religion in which um, the Torah and then the other scriptures too start to become really central. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so do we find that, is it, would you say Second Temple Judaism is when Torah takes on uh, a new level of significance in the community's life? I think that's when, uh, I mean, on most sort of theories of this, it's it's somewhere in the 5th century or something like that, you see, um, that um, the Torah starts to become really central to Jewish life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, from that period, it's already canonical scripture. I mean, there wasn't a process by which a Jewish council sat down and said, which book should we have in the Bible? Um, they, it's a bottom-up movement in which all the scriptures, and especially the Torah, becomes the central focus of the religion as it becomes less possible to exercise um, the sacrificial system. So I think um, you can say that from then onwards, mm-hmm. Judaism is centered on scriptures, but not because anybody ruled that it should be, it just emerges. So when we think of scriptures uh, centrality or significance coming from the bottom up with no one dictating a rule and saying this is mm. in, this is out. How do we understand the uh, the deutero- deuterocanonical sections or what many would refer to as the apocrypha parts apocrypha, that yeah. that, that kind of hang out? But for some of us, they're they're not in our Bible. Um, who, who's saying what's in and what's out then? The apocrypha is a very complicated case because. Um, it's clear that from certainly the second century of our era onwards, Judaism no longer regarded the books that we call the Apocrypha as um, holy script at all. Um, whereas Christians, by and large, took them for granted as part of the Bible. It's partly it's a question of language, that of course these books existed in Greek, and for the Christians, all the Bible was in Greek. Whereas for the Jews, the Bible was in Hebrew, and these books didn't exist in Hebrew, so they weren't part of the Hebrew Scriptures. 
Um, now, we know that some of them had existed in Hebrew, and in fact, we've found in modern times fragments of them. Um, Ecclesiasticus or Ben Sira, a great deal of now is, is known in Hebrew, and the same is true of the book of Tobit. But at the Reformation, when the question of the canon became contentious between Catholics and Protestants, um, none of these books were known in Hebrew. And the reformers said, we would just accept the books that the Jews accept, which are the Hebrew ones. Um, whereas the Catholics said, well, the church has always accepted the Greek ones as well. And so we go on having them as part of our canon. Um, so the Apocrypha is a, is a very contentious issue, though not much discussed in modern debates between the churches. Mm-hmm. But I think it probably ought to be. Uh, why do you think it ought to be? Well, because it is a difference. I mean, our Catholics read from the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical books in, at Mass, in their services, and treat them as on a par with all the other books of Scripture, whereas certainly for some Protestants, they're regarded as no different from any other books in the world. Um, and yet they are, um, in the case certainly of, of Ben Sira, which I mentioned, quite profound books. So that um, I think they ought to be on the agenda when churches discuss matters they disagree on. Hmm. Interesting. Well, hmm. I, I grew up in a tradition in which the Apocrypha was just off limits. And then when I was in mm. seminary, uh, I ended up getting a copy of the new Oxford annotated uh, study Bible, which uh, uh, yes. I, I assume maybe you're familiar with that, or maybe you're a part of writing it. I don't know. Um, but all of a sudden, then I had the Apocrypha in the Bible that I would study from and read from. And on more than mm. one occasion, I would reference something in a, in a Bible class or, or something, and I would turn to it in my own scriptures, and it would cause a great deal of unrest for me to be reading from a book that most people had never heard of. So, um, there's always that. I can believe it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> it's strange. Well, so those were uh, written in Greek. Uh, obviously, there's some copies mm. of those in Hebrew. But the New Testament, of course, is what most people know of when they think of uh, scriptures that were written in Greek. So, uh, yes, let's talk about those f- for a second. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, might be peculiar to many people is that the dating on the earliest uh, writings of the New Testament are not the Gospels, but mm. Pauline writing. Uh, when we think of the Gospels as the second phase of writing that became probably uh, probably became um, what we understand as the, the scriptures. What do you think that says about the, the first century, second century community when the first stuff that we have is actually Pauline, not the Gospels? It's very interesting that the first generation of Christians, including Paul, managed without any written Gospels and with no written records of Jesus at all only what was handed on by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And Paul, of course, tells us occasionally, you know, I, I, I learned this mm-hmm. about Jesus. There's very few things he mentions, actually, because he doesn't talk much about the earthly Jesus at all. But he and his contemporaries seem to have managed without any written documents. And it is only the next generation when Mark, if that's the first gospel, as most people think, actually sits down and says, well, I must take these traditions about Jesus which have been transmitted orally or perhaps in notebook form and make them into a proper continuous story. And that, we think, is in the late 60s. So um, some 15 years or so after Paul is writing. 
So when Paul says things like 1 Corinthians 15, that what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, um, mm. do you think he's referencing those sort of oral traditions that uh, the, the first generation of Christians had, had just passed around and they had just kind of knew and thought, this is enough for us? I think that must be right. Um, I mean, it's very strange that Paul tells us nothing about Jesus' earthly life, really. He tells us he was born, he tells us that he died by crucifixion and that he rose from the dead, he tells us that he instituted the Last Supper. He tells us very, very little else. Um, But the stories must have been going round, and he must have known more than that about Jesus, because as I remark in the book, and a lot of people have remarked, um, you know, the resurrection of just anybody isn't good news. And it's only because um, Jesus was the kind of person he was, that, that his resurrection is good news. Yeah. Um, so Paul must have known more than he tells us, but from the epistles you couldn't construct very much yeah. about the life of Jesus. It, and so that stuff is clearly going around. Uh, some would point to the Christ hymn that Paul references in Philippians 2 mm-hmm. as this early yeah. Christian hymn, that uh, this, this story of Jesus, that we can probably assume... Um, Others would have known when Paul references that. So this that might have been part of that body of knowledge about Jesus? I think that might be true. I mean, it, maybe there are snippets in Paul where he's actually quoting. because they don't have the convention we have of putting things in quote marks and so on. Mm. So you can't tell. But the hymn in Philippians 2 does look as though it might be pre-Pauline. So it might be back before Paul himself, and he's quoting it. Yep. And that's true of other things as well. So we get to the 60s, and I think the line that you say in the book is, the. so when I say dating, I'm thinking of this quote, uh, the dating of New Testament books are like a line of drunks propping each other up with no fixed wall to lean on. Now, I'm probably not going to quote that in a sermon anytime soon, but no, I, no. I definitely get the point of what you're saying, is that these these numbers that we throw out are somewhat arbitrary. They are rather. I mean, you can't... <laughs> show that Mark is before the fall of Jerusalem in 70. Uh, for sure, most scholars think he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't show that Matthew and Luke are in the 70s or 80s or 90s. And they do all, the dating's the, the, the right thing in the line of drunks is that the datings do all depend on each other, because if they were made Mark later, then the others would be later too. Yeah. But there isn't a fixed point. There are fixed points for Paul, because we know what who the various Roman governors were that he was in, involved with um, and when, when they lived. But with the Gospels, we are up against it, and there have been theories that make the Gospels much later, though, yeah. because they're quoted by early second-century writers. They must have been finished before the end of the first century. Gotcha. And so when we say that uh, Mark is somewhere around 60, we're, we're saying that with a little bit of humility. Um, but so when that, that, mm. ge- that comes around, that, that generation of Christians are around 60 AD, um, Mark decides to start writing down these stories. Now, some would say that he's taking from a source, some have called that the Q source, that uh, some might have looked at first and said, well, this is going to lead, lead me to write stories that sound just like that. How should we understand an idea like that? Yes, I mean the, the Q theory is that there, there are things that Mark, that Matthew and Luke both have that aren't in Mark, mm-hmm. but where um, the material in Matthew and Luke is so similar that there must be a relationship. One theory is that 
Luke, read Matthew, and took material from him. But the majority theory is that Mark, Matthew, and Luke independently used a separate source, which is known as Q. Um, and that would mean there were two early documents, Mark and Q, um, which the later evangelists could draw on. Mm-hmm. That 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 would be how it works. Um, now, if you start to say, well, maybe Mark knew Q, then the thing gets impossibly complicated. But that's the, that's the theory that there were these two documents, mm-hmm. and Q would then represent Q is material is nearly all sayings rather than stories, and Q would then represent a a document containing the famous sayings of Jesus, which Matthew and Luke both drew on to expand Mark, because they're both much longer than Mark. Yeah. I think that's how it would work. Yeah, so that makes it, uh, the story of how we got Scripture, far more complicated than maybe some, like myself, grew up hearing, where it was the idea of, if it's inspired, that means there's this divine light from heaven, and the pen is literally in Mark's hand or whoever's hand, but it's actually the divine light from heaven that's dictating each sentence, each word. Um, How do we we understand inspiration um, in light of this far more, uh, as my friend Pete Enns would say, a more incarnational understanding of how Scripture came to be? Well, yes, it is. I mean, obviously, it is much simpler if you say, well, God simply told the evangelists what to write down, um, and they they provided, as, as one of the Reformation divines said, just the paper and ink, mm-hmm. and God provided all the words. Um, the model I'm talking about implies that this is a human process in which people read other people's works and summarize them and extend them and so on. Um, a really simple inspiration dictation theory runs up against the problem that the Gospels don't agree with each other. Um, I mean, if God were to dictate the story of Jesus, it seems strange if he was to do it in four forms which are incompatible with each other. Now, they're not incompatible in the sense they present a totally different person. But if you're working at the degree of detail where God literally dictates the words, then it does seem strange that he would tell the story in such four such different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you think that this is a human product, then you can see how that could happen. Uh, and that doesn't stop you then saying, is there some divine providence behind the fact that we've got these Gospels at all and that, you know, the stories of Jesus didn't perish but are actually preserved. That I would see, I would see a, a divine involvement in, in the Bible mm-hmm. in the sense that we're, we're meant to have these books, but it can't be at the exact level of wording. It must be something more general than that, Yeah, I, I think. I, I, I think that's a, a great way to put it, uh, because you look at the, the Gospel accounts, and those specifically are one of the things that often we see as incompatible, where you have, you know, a, a mm. cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' yeah. ministry in one place, and that's the end of the other. And so we we come up with all these problematic solutions that we think are yes, solutions. Well, right. You know, maybe there's two cleansing of the temples, or maybe Jesus fed this many and then that many people, and, and uh, all these create these... these uh, these yeah. complicated stories that just don't hold together, whereas the idea of that, that God divinely worked within the, the fallibility of human writers to make an inspired document that points us to Jesus, um, I, I think that's a much richer and deeper way to understand it. 
Well, that's my my feeling about it, certainly. Because, of course, if you if you start to say, well, you know, perhaps Jesus cleansed the temple twice, then you get a story which isn't true to either of the gospel accounts. Yeah. Because in both of them, he only does it once. Yeah, because then we're we're saying all of them are wrong. I have the right answer, and let me tell the Bible right. what it's. Yeah, and so there's a level of hubris that's required for that. So, so when we understand scripture, and inspiration looks different than maybe some of us grew up with, or that we've been taught. Um, how do we then take that into how we understand how to to read the Bible? Because, for example, if we look at most Western approaches to scripture, um, we read it different than the rabbinic reading that we find. Um, mm. the New Testament writers being far more comfortable with using than, say, uh, many of us in the West have been comfortable with using? I think that is a problem, that um, the New Testament period and, and the patristic period, the, the Church Fathers for the first two centuries after the New Testament, do read the Bible very differently from how modern people read books at all. And they often read the books allegorically. They, they see them as having hidden meanings. And we've come perhaps to, at least in, in more liberal forms of Christianity, to be suspicious of hidden meanings in Scripture. We want to know what the simple meaning is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there is a, there is a, a difficulty uh, in reading texts which have in the past been read so differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried it in my book to um, outline the ways in which the scriptures were read in the past, and to, and to show some differences between Jewish and Christian ways of reading them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in either case, you're dealing with methods of reading that are not like what we do today. So that is a you know, potential problem if you want to be true to Christian tradition, or alternatively true to Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. then that rubs up against the natural way a modern person would approach a book. Yeah, I, I think whether it's the liberal or the conservative way of reading, you know, the literal way, the, the conservative way says, well, this is literally what it says, and that's what it means. Uh, the mm-hmm. more liberal reading is, well, um, you know, there's a simple understanding to this that we can explain, but the rabbinic tradition leans more on midrash, the, the practice of uh, seeing deeper into the text, the ability for yes. any passage to illustrate other passages, this uh, I, I think the phrase you use for that, or the, the word is intertextuality. Intertextuality, yeah. And, and so, Which again is a sort of, yeah, sorry. No, 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 well, what is it, do you think we need to learn to read text that way, not, uh, or at least incorporate that as one of the ways that we read it? Well, I think it opens our minds if we see that people in the past read text very differently from the way we tend to do it, and try imaginatively to see ourselves doing that, just to see how it would feel to do, to read a text that way, even if in the end we can't do it ourselves any longer. Um, the imaginative leap of saying this is how somebody read this text in the past is very valuable because it takes us out of our own time frame um, and broadens our horizons, I think. Yeah. So I find reading rabbinic uh, commentary on the text, I mean, sometimes it seems uh, crazy in some ways because it often battens on yeah. tiny differences of wording and that kind of thing. And yet you can say, well, the people who did this were doing that because they um, really thought God spoke to them through this text. And at least imaginatively to try and enter into that mm-hmm. is, a, is a mind-expanding experience. And, and doesn't it help us understand more what, what Paul is doing when, when Paul writes? Mm. Because he writes as... Uh, would it, first of all, would it be fair to say that Paul writes as a first-century ra- rabbi would write? Well, 
Pretty much, I think. I mean, a very Hellenized rabbi, a yeah. very, a very, you know, Greek-speaking rabbi. But he does, he does use rabbinic maths, like in Galatians when he says that the promise is not to a seed, but to seeds, plural, not to seeds plural, but to a seed singular, um, and that must mean Christ. Um, that that is a, a rabbinic way of fixing on the exact grammatical form of the word in Greek actually but just in the way a rabbi would do and saying um, the exact verbal form uh, is important doctrinally mm-hmm. um, and, and isn't that similar to what Paul does I think it's in Corinthians where Paul talks about uh, the rock that was in the wilderness mm-hmm. uh, when, when Paul says well that rock was Christ um, yeah don't you think this is more a more expansive uh, rabbinic way of saying something more poetic than what was literally intended by by uh, maybe I some. Think it, I think, yes, I think it is actually. I mean, um, of course. The, I mean, you have to first of all remember that Paul is talking about the rock following people through the wilderness, which is mm-hmm. a a non biblical tradition. It doesn't say that in the in 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 the Pentateuch. The rock followed the people around, so it was there whenever they needed water. Mm-hmm. And this is this comes from non-canonical Jewish sources, but then he says uh, in a way that no, of course, no rabbi would have said that the rock in question really means Christ, which is a sort of allegorizing of it, um, and uh, uh, that well, that that take, knocks us out of our normal comfort zone in reading texts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's one section uh, of scripture in uh, in later in Corinthians and. Uh, I think it's 14, where Paul talks about, he's doing some of the um, uh, the order of worship, and he's talking about uh, women and their need to be silent, and he says something about mm-hmm. how this is according to law. And I've heard some speculate that you can't really find anything in Jewish law in Torah that says mm. that, that that's exactly um, true. And, and maybe what Paul is doing there is a little something different than just a literal quotation of what law is saying. I think that's right. I don't think there is anything in the Old Testament that would imply that women must keep silent in worship mm-hmm. um, at all. And it's a custom that the, the early church obviously had. And Paul is uneasy because sometimes he talks about, you know, if women pray or prophesy, they must have their heads covered, which implies that they do pray and prophesy. Mm-hmm. And then elsewhere he says women must keep silent. So you've got a sort of tension, perhaps, in what Paul himself is saying. Perhaps he wasn't fully aware of just how radical his own beliefs were in the end. Mm. But you're right that none of it rests on any scriptural proof. Uh, It's just a matter of the custom. So it it creates a tension, that's what you just said. And I I think that's so uh, well said. Uh, But it's hard for for some of us to be okay that there is tension within scripture, Mm. I know. How can we start to see that tension is okay to have within Scripture? Yes, I think that's very important. Um, that uh, I mean, I'm starting again, bottom up in a way, and saying, well, look, empirically, if you look at Scripture, there are tensions, um, and never mind whether we think there ought to be, there are, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so we have to live with that yeah. in some way. Um, it's no good saying, well, there can't be any, so I shall read everything until I get it to say the same thing. Um, But, um, of course, uh, if you have Holy Scripture, 
you don't want it to have lots of tensions within it. And my um, feeling is that Jews handle this better than Christians do, in that um, Jews in practice are often quite happy to say that different parts of Scripture say different things that aren't totally compatible with each other, and yet somehow God comes through the whole thing. And uh, the, the, the rabbinic principle of there being another opinion or another word, as they sometimes say, yeah. is a way of saying in Scripture you'll find things that don't necessarily agree with each other all the time. Provided they don't, for, for a Jew, provided they don't impinge on custom, on, on living a Jewish life, and, and give you contradictory rules, that's a problem. Provided they don't do that, then we can live with Scripture saying different things at different times, because we all say different things at different times and live with a certain degree of tension in our lives. That seems to be quite a sensible way of approaching it. Yeah, that that, that is quite sensible. Uh, so a, a Jewish in Jewish thought, that's far more uh, comfortable, appropriate, uh, but you said mm. Christian, it, it's harder for Christians. Is there something... Uh, maybe this is post-modernity, like we mentioned earlier, that's caused us to not be okay with paradox or tension. Is there something else you think that, that causes us to not have that level of comfortability? Yes, it may be that. Um, I mean, it's partly, I think, that Christianity, of course, got hitched to various um, sophisticated philosophical systems of thought quite early on. I mean, in the first few centuries, which stressed consistency and coherence and so on. Uh, traditions continued in Christianity. Well, uh, Professor Barton, I uh, I don't know if we've come up with what your next book should be. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't, don't think we so. figured that one out. Uh, mm. But I do think we figured out that your book, History of the Bible, is uh, well worth a read and that there's a lot of good stuff in there. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, uh, Professor Barton, um, thanks again for the book. And since you are a uh, professor, let's end this with one final question for you. Um, there are a lot of biblical translations out there. Tell us the one right one that gets everything correct. <laughs> well, I wish there were one that got everything correct. But my favorite <laughs> is the Revised English Bible, which is really? a revision of the New English Bible, which is more or less sunk without trace because the NRSV is the one that people use. But I think it's actually better. You think it's better? But uh, actually finding one is probably not too easy because, it's, um, as I say, it's rather been eclipsed by the NRSV, which is very good. Um, mm -hmm. But the REV has, similarly has inclusive language, for example. But I, okay. think it, I think it's slightly more radical in the way it translates the text, freer in the way it translates the text, less tied to the sort of King James tradition, which the NRSV is the sort of final descendant of. So I, I, mm. I go for the REV. All right. Well, you're going to make me have to get a different copy because I've been an NRSV guy for a while. And, mm, um, but I use it too. All right. Well, there we are. okay. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. Well, uh, I think one uh, book that people should all use is your book, History of the Bible. Professor Barton, thanks for writing it. And I do appreciate the time. It has been an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Right. Bye-bye now. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.